Welcome to the Kingdom Life Church Podcast. We hope you enjoy this message by Pastor Jamie Dixon. For more great content, visit klcmaine.com. Go with me to Matthew chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13. Um, you know, it, it is uh, very normal for uh, churches to pray into and get a word for the new year. Um, uh, you know, we were just on Wednesday, um, Dustin and I were sitting around with with um, pastors from our whole area, and man, those guys are just so great. They... These guys have like slogans and and keychains already printed, and um, with their slogan for the year and their sermon series. Oh, I wish I was as planned out as half of these guys. One day, when I'm like older, I will I will have T-shirts made up for us and keychains and all the stuff, bumper stickers, you know. Um, God's releasing more in 24. You know what I'm saying? Um, open door in 24. And, uh, but, but we were actually going around the room and, and these guys, you know, everyone has a word for the year for their church. And, and uh, I, I've actually been, you know, I, I, I don't have a cool slogan for us actually, so I'm sorry. Um, but I do have a word that I really feel is going to set the course for us um, as we put our focus on this year. And, and I actually got it during my sabbatical, and I've been praying into it for the past three or four months, and um, back in October, and, and, um, and so I'm, I am really excited. I've been holding on to this word, because I really felt like uh, it was for this year, and um, can we just take a moment to pray as we get into this? Is that all right? Heavenly Father, we thank you for this year. We thank you for what's ahead of us. We thank you even more for what's behind us. Father, we thank you for the journeys that we've been on and, and the things that have, God, we are all here in this moment and in this place together for such a time as this because of the journey that you have, you have led us on. And we thank you for all the work, even the hard seasons that you're refining us and producing something, um, Lord, that was uh, unshakable inside of us. We thank you for it. And God, I'm asking you right now, Lord, as we enter into a word for this year, I pray, Lord, that you'd give us your heart for a spirit of unity and the bond of peace that would rally around this idea together. Lord, that we would have eyes to see and ears to hear, that we would be aligned in what you're doing and saying, not just aligned together, but aligned with you in what you're doing. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You know, it's important um, that we're all together on what is God doing. And, and now many of us are going to have different things for our personal lives, but, um, you know, it's important that as, as a team, we keep referring back to this word. When we look at our schedule and our calendar, and when we look at what we're investing our time and energy into, I mean, it's, no, we want to be invested into what he's saying and doing, not just off of a good idea. Amen? And so, so that's really why it's so important for us to, um, to really pray into it and to get a direction and, and to uh, navigate it as leaders. Um, you know, I, I've been praying into the season of life that we're in, and, and um, you know, COVID was not a season, it was an event. And, and I think a lot of people think that COVID was the most important thing, and I, I want to present to us that COVID was not the most important thing, but it was a catalyst into a very significant season for the body of Christ. And, um, you know, uh, COVID was an audit. 
It was a spiritual audit. And in a spiritual audit, you know, sometimes when people start a business or they've been running their business for years, they will actually hire someone to come and audit their company so that they can actually sit with their team and go, here's where we're missing it. Here's where we're lacking. Here's what I didn't understand was going on. Here are dynamics. How do we fix it before there's a federal audit? Does that make sense? And I feel like, I feel like uh, uh, COVID was an audit. And I feel like it was a shaking moment that kind of revealed some stuff. You know, there, there were some levels of, of just church culture or the way that we're walking with the Lord. And all of a sudden, like some things came to the surface and we go, ah, where did that come from? I didn't even know that level of fear was inside of me. I didn't even know that level of anger was inside of me. I didn't know that I was that easily prone to, to uh, polarizing the relationship relationships in my life like I was in that season. I can't believe what came up out of me. And, um, you know, I, I think that that was an important spiritual audit. What are our churches? What have we been building as churches? Were we building a very, you know, I know I knew a lot of churches that were, you know, mega churches, multi-million dollar churches, and um, it take huge offerings every single Sunday. And, and I, I remember like when COVID happened, I'd get on the phone with some of my friends and they'd be like, it's crazy. We're going online and all of our givers have stopped giving. And they were realizing that the, the reason why people gave was because those offerings were being taken in public with visibility and they were teaching the church how to give in front of others, but they actually did not actually have a, like a, an, a heart of sacrifice and offering and worship unto the Lord. And they realized all of a sudden the culture was so shaken by the audit that when they came back together, they're like, Lord, show us how to build an authentic culture of offering and worship in our giving. Is this making sense to everybody? And where we have been is we've been in between events. And I do believe there's another event coming. Now, mind you, how many of you guys know that we're in election season, so everybody's a prophet of doom, right? Oh, it's kind of election season and, you know, um, everything's crazy. And, you know, that, that Miami fire happened and all of a sudden there's rumors that there's 10-foot aliens walking through malls in Miami. And everyone's like, oh, it's the government trying to hide something, you know what I mean? And, and oh, it's, it's an election season. So everyone's like freaking out and prophets of doom. But I, I want to, I do believe that we're in between events, but I don't think that we're in between bad events. I actually, it actually says in the last days of the Lord will be the great and terrible days of the Lord. And, um, and, and although the COVID was crazy and, and a lot of people go, oh no, there's something bigger coming. Yeah, there is something bigger coming and it might be a spiritual awakening. But how many of us know a spiritual awakening will shake a nation just as much as a pandemic will? And I believe that we are in between events. And I'm not preparing my bunker. You know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm preparing my heart because I believe that we're in between events. And that event very well may be one of the greatest spiritual awakenings that we've seen in over 100 years might touch the nations of the earth. And are we ready for that event? And I, I say all this to say is because I've, I believe the season that we're in is really important where we're actually taking inventory of the audit um, and that we're actually preparing in the season to, to what the Lord wants to do. And I have, I have a warning for us for this year. Do not become distracted by the headlines and the international and national movement of society. Do not be distracted because there are going to be terrible measurements of what God is actually doing. The headlines are gonna be terrible metrics for measuring what God is doing and do not allow them to have influence over your hope and over your courage. 
there will be distractions, but I sense from the Lord, and, and this is what I, I'm sensing from the Lord, and I want to I want to build a, a, a teaching off of out of Matthew 13 is I sense from the Lord that in 2024 that it is a year of local awakening led by hometown revivalists who are tending to the family altar. I believe that 2024 is going to be a year of local awakenings led by hometown revivalists who are tending to the family altar. I have a sense that God is calling the church to crack the code of stewarding zeal in in their devotion in the midst of the mundane routines of life. I think I think we're all we all know it's easy for movements to begin by missionaries who come on assignment into a region who who leave their patterns of life move to an unfamiliar place and live in an unfamiliar way. I think we're all familiar with how how that can cause movement in the body of Christ and bring spiritual awakening. But I believe that we're being called to crack the code of actually staring in the face of familiarity and denying complacency that this is going to be a year where the Lord is calling people to begin to steward the fire on the altar of their home to actually begin to live with continuous zeal in the vision for the place they grew up to actually get a vision for their family and to get a vision for where their workplace and get a vision for where they live because there's been a discontentment that is said to go move here and start anew and live in a way you've never lived. But I believe that one of the greatest um, sustaining revivals the world has ever seen is going to be those that crack the code of familiarity and steward revival on the family altar of their hometown. Is this making sense? <clears throat> go with me to Matthew chapter 13. And this is why I think it's so cool that everybody's at home right now, you know, and that we're here together and those who are local are able to come together and people are in their living rooms. And I think, I think it's a, a pretty cool moment because I feel like God's calling us to actually steward the fire of the, of the family altar. Look at uh, Matthew 13, 53. This is a, a, a story that many of us are familiar with. And um, I'm gonna try to break it down for us. It came to pass that when Jesus had finished these parables, that he departed from there when he had come to his own country. And he taught them in their synagogues so that they were astonished saying, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary and his brother called James and, and Joseph and Simon and Judas and his sisters, are they not all with us? Where then did this man get all these things? So they were offended at him. But Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his own country and in his own house. And he did not do many mighty miracles there because of their unbelief. Now, this story is again referred to in the uh, book of Mark. And in the book of Mark, it says that he laid hands on a few and they were healed, but no mighty miracles were done. In um, Matthew, he comments on their lack of honor, but in Mark, he really focuses on their unbelief. Um, In Mark, it says that he was not able to do mighty miracles, but in Matthew, it says that he chose not to do any miracles. Um, Regardless of that, I want to say this is that in other cities, 
the people were thronging against Jesus. They were pressing through crowds and they were lowering bodies into rooms just to be touched by him. Women were pushing through crowds to lay a hand on his garment, but he came to his own town and he marveled at their unbelief and only healed a few. One of the things I need us to understand is that Matthew 13 is not a promise, but a warning. Matthew 13 is not a promise, but a warning. I've heard people teach it that you have to leave your hometown because there's, prophets are without honor in their hometown as if it's a promise. And I want to present to you that it is not a promise. It is a warning of learning how to steward honor in the local environment. It's not a promise. It's a, cra- a code that needs to be cracked. That even Jesus was limited by the unbelief and dishonor of the local community. Um, you know, one of the things I think is important is, is that we start focusing on unbelief, is that the unbelief will actually hinder miracles, or dishonor will hinder miracles. But I want to I present to you that this isn't so much about dishonor or unbelief, as many would teach on it as, as much as it is, is that whatever narrative that they were stewarding about the life of Jesus formed these ideas of dishonor and forms of ideas of unbelief around his life and ministry, and it wasn't that Jesus couldn't do miracles. It was that the people of Nazareth didn't create opportunity for him to do miracles. What means is, is that Jesus was here, but they didn't show up. I'm gonna say that again. Jesus was there, but they didn't show up with expectation of what could flow from Jesus' life. It's amazing how many times that, that we will, that there will be opportunities that are beyond us that we get excited about. But when opportunities show up where we live in routine, we'll miss the opportunity. Does that make sense? Unbelief and dishonor were the outcome that ruled their actions, but where did those conclusions come from? Those conclusions of unbelief and dishonor came from familiarity. You know, in, in the 5th century, um, Augustine said something we've all heard, but it was Augustine teaching on this very passage. He said, familiarity breeds contempt. That when we become familiar with something or somebody or a place, we start missing the honorable attributes of that place or of those people. Why? Because we become so familiar with their lack or we begin to compare ourselves with who they are and where they come from, that we actually start to demean people in places in our imagination. Familiarity is a survival tactic to live with our discontentment. Let me say that one more time. Familiarity is a survival tactic to live with our discontentment. We find moral supremacy in our insecurities. You know, it's like people that come from a poor place, you know, and not from a rich place. And they see people succeeding in wealth. And we go, it's better to be poor than to be rich because of X, Y, and Z. And what it is, is, is typically people are struggling with discontentment where they are. So they'll create an idea of moral supremacy around their current experience. But that moral supremacy begins to actually begin to wage war against the success of the people around them. That's what familiarity breeds contempt means. 
We often will think cautionary accusation towards the successful. We start going, well, what's the real goal? What are they really trying to accomplish? And we, are, we, we get these accusational type of assumptions and cautions about people because if we, if we can denounce their probable immorality in my imagination, then I can live with a lack of accomplishments in my life. And, and, and what familiarity does is if we can demean someone in our imagination of them, then we can survive the places that comparison causes us to feel disappointed in ourselves and our lives. So the problem is, is that when, we, when we're feeling discontentment, we start wrestling and we, with discontentment, we start comparing ourselves with things around us, all of a sudden those emotions and experiences become so difficult that we have to create survival tactics of dishonor and unbelief or assumption or accusation or demeaning imaginative thoughts in our minds about people in order to lower them down, level the place field so that nothing about your life or this city or our experiences has the ability to intimidate me. Does this make sense? This is why familiarity breeds contempt. The issue in Nazareth was not so much that they had unbelief. The issue was is that they began to look at the life of Jesus through the lens of familiarity. And it began to breed the thoughts and imaginations and the conversations that caused contempt, which caused them to not show up, which caused them to not live with expectation, which caused them to begin to dishonor his life. It began to cause them to bring unbelief and question the, the fruit and the validity of Jesus' life. The problem with familiarity is it rejects where you are, but romanticizes where you aren't. Does that make sense? The problem with familiarity is it rejects where you are, but romanticizes where you aren't. Why do you think discontentment will usually lead to changes of, of surroundings and, and people and we make changes in our lives just to change our environment? But how many of you know wherever you go, there you are? And, and discontentment will chase you down because discontentment is, is, is usually not an indictment to your surroundings, but unresolved issues within you. You guys okay? Yeah. The problem with familiarity is it rejects where you are, but romanticizes where you are. In the case of Matthew 13, they began with amazement at the teachings of Jesus. This is incredible until somebody goes, wait a second. Isn't that the carpenter's son? Their family lives down the street. And then all of a sudden, that initial astonishment with the revelation that could only come from the divine begins to get leveled out by the lens of familiarity. These questions begin a confrontation with familiarity and familiarity breeds dishonor and unbelief that withholds the opportunity for God to show up in the way that we hope that he will. It's incredible that now none of us would agree that we believe this, but it's probable that we actually think this way, is that God is more powerful somewhere else than he is where I stand. And that's discontentment and it's familiarity that limits your faith from where you're living, where you're standing, and where you're working. It causes us to miss the opportunity of the now and romanticize the future possibilities. I believe 
that 2024 is the year that we learn to break the code of familiarity and to learn uh, to live abrasively zealous in the midst of the mundane. That we would steward the flame on the local altar and not miss the potential of the here and the now. I, I believe this is a year of, 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 of people actually taking ownership of their home, of their marriage, of their family, of their town, of their local communities, of their schools, of their workplaces, and actually saying, uh, let your kingdom come, your will be done where I stand as it is in heaven. Not as a coming event, but as a personal responsibility to be liberators and carriers of a heavenly reality upon their life. That we wouldn't take for granted what God is doing in front of me while romanticizing about what he's doing in other places. The altar of our home would become as holy as the altar of my church. Let me say that again, that the altar of my home would become as holy as the altar of my church, that the altar of my local church would be as holy as the altar of the conference, that the opportunity for miracles working, work, the power, working power in Walmart would be as available as it is in the mission field, that, that the tasks that I have to accomplish today are submitted to my devotion and hunger for the kingdom, that we'd actually be those that learn how to submit our to-do list to our devotion to the Holy Spirit. That we'd actually learn how to tend to the altar of our heart. That every day is equally full of kingdom potential. That we would not live in the ebbs and flows of our emotional zeal or availability to the Holy Spirit. But that we would actually become priests that tend to the altar of our heart every single day. And we'd begin to live with the idea of potential in the here and now. That when God moves on the life of my friend, I'm not sitting and waiting for it to be a flash in the pan, but I rally to the cause of their life and push them forward. I think that we're so familiar with moments where someone is running zealous. You know, I've actually watched people, I've watched marriages where someone gets on fire and the other person doesn't. And then all of a sudden it becomes a relational fracture in their life because one person wants what they had, but another person wants where they're going. And all of a sudden the, the dichotomy of their vision for their lives and their friendship changes and it tears a relationship or even a marriage apart. But I, I, I'm calling us to this, you know, in 2024, that this would be a year that we'd actually have a common vision of zeal for the house of the Lord. And when you get on fire, the fire on your life will not actually, conf- will confront discontent in me and not actually cause me to fight for where I've been, but will actually stir me with holy jealousy for where I'm supposed to go. Does that make sense? That this like zeal would come upon local believers, homegrown revivalists. We're actually the person that you've known their entire life. You know all the mistakes. You know they're all their family. You know, I can't tell you how, we're, we live in a small town, y'all. I sit with people and like, you know this family, they say the last name and you know how they are. And I'm like, I actually, I have no idea how they are. I don't, you know, but like, you know, usually you go to school and you went with like six of their family members and they all have the same thing going on. And I'm telling you, this is a year that we break the code of familiarity and somebody emerges from a family line and breaks a generational curse. That somebody emerges from a family line and brings revival. That somebody doesn't come in from the outside carrying the prophetic word. Somebody comes, shows up because they woke up in the morning and God ministered to them. That it's not just the year of the outside prophet, it's the, the year of the local prophet with a word from the Lord that brings breakthrough for a city.
that we actually learn how to listen to what God is doing in the local place with the same faith and expectation that we've been listening from, from, the, uh, from the missionary place. Is this making sense? I, I don't want to live so familiar that I reject what God is doing right now and choose to not make opportunity for miracles. I don't want to become so familiar with life in my home that when God is moving in my home, I miss it. Or so familiar with my friends that when God shows up through, through my friends that I miss it. I don't, I don't want to live so familiar that when I hear the echoing of the Lord to come away with him, that the voice of the mundane task of my life have greater influence than the whispers of the Holy Spirit. I am believing for someone to not go away to get on fire but someone to stay to get on fire. And I'm not just saying that for this house. This is not like, oh, too many people have gone off to, you know, YWAM and I, I need to bring this like reactionary word. That's not what this is whatsoever. I love sending people to where they're called. This is completely out of a word. I believe this is what God is doing in 2024. I believe there's an audit that was taken and that there are, some, there are some cultural dynamics in the body of Christ that God is actually turning tables over on. And part of that is the missionary mentality that says you have to go to get, but God is actually calling people to tend to the local altar and the altar of their family, and that God is gonna send fire on homegrown revival-like movements, and that God is gonna move on entire families, and he's suddenly gonna show up on people that you've been familiar with and known for a long time, and in a moment, they will not be the person that you're familiar with. And we are gonna be held responsible to actually acknowledge what God is doing honor it and fan it into flame and not actually wrestle and try to level the playing field and pull them down, God is going to call us to break the code of Matthew 13 because it wasn't a promise, but it was a warning. Does this make sense? <clears throat> I believe that we are in a day that those that carry revival won't come from other places, but carry revival in the same place that everyone knows their name. I believe that this is actually a moment that people are actually going to start getting captured by a vision for what's around them, not just what's beyond them. That people are going to start catching a vision for their family and for their local school. And God is going to ask us to do the hardest thing you've ever done, and it's to break the pattern of familiarity, to break the thing that you have, you have done your whole life the way that you've lived your whole life, in a moment, he's gonna say, my grace is here right now to break the pattern and to begin to live wildly different than you've ever lived before. The patterns that you've had in the morning, you're gonna get this holy jealousy in you saying, break the morning pattern and come away with me. The way that you do family and your, your evenings as, as with your spouse, all of a sudden he's gonna be like, break the pattern. He's gonna give you an appetite for a new way forward. And I'm telling you now, respond to the Lord because it's going to be a holy moment for you and your family. It's going to be a holy moment of what God's going to begin to do in your family when you do that. Over the next few weeks, I'm going to be hitting on some of these, um, some of these subjects. This is me just presenting the idea of what does it mean to live as a 
radical, wild, devoted lover of Jesus in the local context. And over the next few weeks, I'm going to be going on, what does it mean to live by the Spirit every single day in in an incredibly carnal routine on your life? What, What does it look like to actually push past the intimidation of familiarity? Like, what does that actually look like? What, what does it look like to tend a, a prayer life that is unwavering? We're going to get into these the next few weeks. And so I, I'm, not, I'm not declaring sermon series, but I am, I am going to say everything that I begin to teach on is going to be coming back to this idea of living a radically devoted life at the altar of the Lord in your life and actually breaking the code of familiarity uh, and its power and influence over your movement that it has. Is that all right? All right, why don't you guys stand with me?